Well, we are in John's gospel, uh, slowly working our way through the whole thing. And um, today, we're going to take a look at chapter 7. Is that me? Tell him I'm busy, please. Thanks. <laughs> we'll wait. <laughs> okay. Um, last week, in John 7, Jesus was told by his brothers. His brothers were giving him some advice to go to Jerusalem and do his tricks, his, his miracles in Jerusalem to gather a crowd. And Jesus says, first of all, that's worldly thinking. Um, and, and you're doing it to, to be, you want me to be popular. I'm, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and not be popular. I am going to be crucified. Now, Jesus does go to Jerusalem, but not publicly. So um, that's what, where we pick up. It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he, he doesn't go with the crowd. He just kind of sneaks into Jerusalem. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Now we're going to see uh, that the people have a whole list of things they think about him. Is he the Messiah? Is he a deceiver? So the question is, who is this Jesus? Some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So we all have our opinions about this Jesus but don't, don't speak too loudly because the authorities might arrest us. Right. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? He hasn't gone to our schools. Where did he get this book learning? Right. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. I get my, my teaching from God, right? Now, verse 17 is going to be our key verse that I want us to focus in on. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You hear what he's saying? You will not get Jesus right if you have not submitted your heart to God's will. Your, your uh, conclusion about who you think Jesus is tells us something about your heart. Only those who have submitted their hearts to God will understand who Jesus is and whether his teaching truly is from God or not. Right? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. In other words, I'm not speaking, I'm not making a name for myself. I'm just here telling you what God says. And you'll recognize that if and only if you've submitted your will 
to do God's will. Now, I am not going to read the whole rest of the chapter, but here are some conclusions people have made in this chapter about Jesus. Some say he's a good man. Some say, no, he's leading people astray. They say, how is it that this man has learning? Where did he, what school did he go to? Another man says, you have a demon. Some say, this really is the prophet. Moses said that there would be a super prophet. Look for him. This is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. They marveled and said, no one ever spoke like this man. In fact, the, the Pharisees sent people to arrest Jesus, and rather than arresting him, they were mesmerized by his teaching. And they said, why didn't you arrest him? No one ever spoke like this man. We couldn't arrest him. He was amazing. And then the Pharisees said, have you also been deceived? So, big picture, John chapter 7, is there's lots of murmuring and muttering about who Jesus is. And in the middle of it all, he says this. If anyone... If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. Another way to, to, to say it is this way. Rather than us sitting in judgment of Jesus, our judgment of Jesus becomes the thing that sits in judgment of us. Your conclusions about who Jesus is tell far more about you than him. All right? Now, in um, philosophy, there's a branch of philosophy called epistemology. It's, it's that branch of philosophy that studies truth. It's the study of truth and how we know what is true and whether we can know anything is true. So, you know, picture these philosophers sitting around um, saying, well, how can we know that what we know is knowable and how do we know it's true and how do you know, how do you even know that you're alive? How do you even know you have a brain? How do we know anything? And, and you can spin down into a spiral uh, of, of craziness. And um, what, what Jesus is saying here is this. Understanding who he is is first a moral issue before it's an intellectual issue. Now, I love apologetics. Apologetics is the branch of Christianity where you defend the truth of, uh, of Christendom. And there's books and lectures all about how do you know that Christianity is true and there's all these proofs. And, um, I, and I love that. But what this is saying is None of the arguments are going to break through somebody's heart until they first submit their heart to God. The arguments go in one ear and out the other until their hearts are submitted to do God's will. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to use verse 17 as kind of the key, right? And I want to give you four thoughts about thinking. 
Okay? Four thoughts about thinking. So we're going to do some thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking. Right? So I hope you brought your thinking caps this morning. It's not time to, it's summertime, it's not time to tune out. It's time to tune in. All right? So here, in fact, I want to pray for us. Lord, um, you, you tell us that unless we submit our hearts to, to your will, we won't get it. We'll be in the dark. So Holy Spirit, do a work right now where we, uh, again, submit our hearts to you. Open our hearts so then you can open our minds so we understand these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so first, I want to talk about why we think the way we think. And when I say way, I, I, we, uh, the way we think, I don't necessarily mean Christians, but the way our society thinks. You know, our worldview today didn't just happen in isolation. There's a whole history of thinking that has taken place. So today we are where we are. Now this will be reviewed for, for some of you, um, but, but let me, uh, me kind of take us back several hundred years to the, what we call the Enlightenment, okay? A time in Europe where there, there were lots of advances in philosophy and science and so forth. And um, there was a 51-year period where the world radically changed because of some discoveries. And uh, these are the three characters who, who uh, brought about this, this, this radical change in our thinking. First was a guy named Christopher Columbus. And he, in... 1492 sailed the ocean blue and he thought he was going to India and China but he ran into America right now the the radical thing was not that the world thought that that the globe was flat and he discovered that it was uh, a ball the radical thing was and he wouldn't have sailed unless he thought the world was a globe but the radical thing was the world was twice the size that anybody knew. So imagine one day you think you've you, you're populated the entire world and the next day you find out there's a whole other world on the other side of the globe. So that blew people's minds, right? A few years later, a guy named Martin Luther, a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, he uh, publishes his 95 theses and basically he says this, the church is wrong. The church got salvation wrong. You've been, you've been misled about salvation. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the authority of Scripture alone, not on, uh, on the teachings of the church. And, and that sent people into a panic. First of all, we're confused about the world. Secondly, we're confused about God and whether the church can tell us the truth or not, right? So that was in 1517. And then in 1543, Copernicus says, hey guys, I got this, uh, 
this strange thought. I'm looking through my telescope, and it turns out the sun doesn't rotate around the earth. The earth orbits around the sun. Just thought I'd let you know that. So, so everybody was thrown into a panic. We don't know the size of the planet we live on. We can't trust the church. We can't trust our lion eyes because it looks like the sun's moving. What is certain? And there was a crisis of certainty. So philosophers said, we need an anchor. What is the starting place? And that's when Descartes, um, and he, he kind of reminds me of that guy in Princess Bride, uh, doesn't he? You know? <laughs> so, so he's the guy who sat in the room and he goes, I don't even know if I exist. How do I know if I exist? And he goes, ah, I think, therefore I am. And everybody said, yeah, that's the place to start. Your thinking establishes that you're a person and you exist and we can build on that anchor. Okay? Now, that was a radical shift because prior to that, most people, at least in the Christianized world, assumed that the anchor was God. He's the one we go to to ground our thinking and reality and certainty on. Right? And Descartes, now Descartes wasn't trying to diss God, but he, he, in his effort to find certainty, here's what happened. The arrow shifted from God being our primary certainty to now man and his thinking becoming our primary certainty. Now, out of this move, two schools of, of thought developed. The, the rationalists and the empiricists. The rationalists said, well, while we're in our head, let's come up with rational equations, the law of non-contradiction, something can't be both A and not A at the same time, and the law of causality and mathematical formulas. So rationalists say, we can know truth through rational, logical thinking. The empiricist says, no, 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 we need, to, we need to, to, in our heads, observe reality, empirical reality, and just take notes on everything. And this is really the, the, the birth of the scientific method where we're just going to try to rid our minds of any preconceived ideas and just go with the facts, okay? Um, now, none of this is wrong until... Along comes, and, and so, so, so by the way, they didn't, they didn't throw God out of the picture. But then, through rational thinking and empiricism, a theory develops called natural selection. Charles Darwin then says, man got here not by God creating him, but through natural selection man evolved from lower species. So now we enter into a time where we don't need God. Yeah, those silly superstitious people can believe in God, but we know better. 
are our ground is purely rational and empirical. Okay. Now, um, that took us into 1900s. And, and a lot of people thought, we can now, mankind can now achieve utopia. And then there was World War I, World War II, and then great scientific discoveries, nuclear science gave us nuclear medicine, but it also gave us nuclear bombs. The internet, a great force for good, like we're broadcasting live to millions right now, right? right? But also a great force for evil. So this is a picture of what you call modern thought, modernism, where we're going to rely on rational thought and empiricism to bring about utopia. Then about the year 2000, if you were raised in the 2000s, we entered into a phase called postmodernism, where we said, you know what, rationalism and empiricism hasn't brought in utopia. So what do we have now? Just questioning everything. All right. Now, if you grew up before the 2000s, like I did, you're more a rationalist and an empiricist. Now, the, the problem with this, at least in secular thought, is this is used to either get rid of God or to question God. All right? So... The rational empiricist born before or living before 2000 says, I'll determine whether I think that Bible story is believable or not. And then if you were born after the 2000s, now you're in post-modernity where you go, I don't know that anything is trustworthy. We distrust what they say, they call it meta-narratives, big picture explanations. So I don't know that anybody has the answer. And that's our, uh, our history of where we are today. Now, um, here's what Jesus says. The starting place for, for knowledge is this. Submit your will to God. You will then know whether what I teach is true or not. You will then know whether I am the Messiah or not. And when you find me, here's what you'll find. In Colossians it says, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. When you find me, you find the source of all things. I hold all things together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, in Colossians it says this. It speaks of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, he's saying, apart from me, you can have naturalism and empiricism and uh, rationalism and all your things. You're lost. If I really am the creator and the sustainer and I hold all wisdom apart from me, you're just banging around in the dark out there. 
That's why he says, step one, submit your will to me. Right? Now, <laughs> that was point one. Let's see if we can move a little quicker here. Um, now, point two is this. Even though in secular thinking and in philosophy, we've gotten rid of God through naturalism and through, through rationalism and so forth, Okay, But the Bible tells us that all people still know that God exists and we know certain things are true about him. Even if you are a formal atheist, you've been trained in atheism, you still know that God exists and you know certain things about him. And you say, how do you know this? Well, the Bible tells me that every one of us knows about God. In Romans chapter 1, it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Well, where, where do we see these attributes of God? Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You know God exists and you know certain attributes about God by looking at creation. And it's so obvious that they are without excuse. No atheist can stand before God and say, you never revealed your existence and your glory to me. And he'll go, how'd you miss it? How'd you miss it? Now, what can we know about God? Well, first of all, he exists. Stuff screams existence of God. Right? Look around. There's stuff. You go, I'm an evolutionist. Evolution is just a theory of how one species evolves into another. Where'd the stuff come from? All right? So stuff screams God. All right? Now, when you look at the stuff God created, it also reveals his power. Okay, you go, wow, this, there must be uh, a powerful God out there. You know, ancient man may not have known that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around, but you know what they did know? They looked at the sun and they said, it's big and it's hot and there's power. So whoever created that must be big and powerful. In fact, modern science only adds to our knowledge of the power of God. Do you know that every second the sun produces the same amount of energy as a trillion megaton bombs going off? A trillion megat uh, megaton bombs exploding Every second, that's the energy in the sun. And then we find out that the sun is just an itty-bitty star. And there are stars millions of times bigger than ours. And do you know how many stars there are in our universe so far? Give me a shot, Greg. What do you think? Oh, so close. 200 billion trillion stars. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying he's a pretty powerful God. Right? And science only 
informs us more about how awesome he is. Now, I think we can also look at how God has set up a life-sustaining planet and conclude he's a good God. He's big, he's powerful, he's good. Jesus said this, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus says you should be able to look at the seasons and how that allows there to be crops and how he provides rivers and water and, and uh, uh, hamburgers through beef and chickens and chickens and eggs. <laughs> um, you know, God is a good God. All right? Now, you know what else we know? He is a holy God. And we know right from wrong. You say, well, what about the person who doesn't have the Bible? They know right from wrong because Romans says this, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What that's saying is even the person without the Bible knows right from wrong. And sometimes they obey that law and they feel good. And sometimes they disobey that law and they feel bad. But everybody knows there's a God and he's holy and he has a moral code. And we, we uh, all are accountable to that moral code. Okay. Now, one more thing we all know. This God, he's all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's good, he's holy, and he is just. Just. Now, that's a great thing and it's a terrifying thing because we know we violated his law and this is what the end of Romans says. Paul gives a vice list of sins talks about evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they, mankind, know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. You know that you deserve to die. This is still Romans 1 where Paul hasn't even introduced the Bible yet. He's saying you know God exists. You know he is moral and he has certain laws. And you know you violated them and you deserve to die. All that... The unbeliever, the atheist, the nominal believer. Everybody knows that this is true. Now, the question is, if this is so obvious, why do so many people reject this truth? How, how people can know and not know God? Romans 1 is this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
the human mind and heart is brilliant at taking truth and reworking it and suppressing it and holding it down and saying, there's no God. He's not holy. This is not sinful. That's not sin. We, we are, are full-time suppressors of truth. But we're without excuse because God's revealed himself. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay? That is why Jesus says, before you will understand who I am, your heart needs to change. You're just going to rationalize. You're going you're to grab onto this theory and that theory to justify what you want to believe or don't want to believe. So step one in finding truth is submit your heart to the will of of God. Another way to say it, that's repentance. That's saying, yeah, I've been running from you. Now I will turn toward you. And Lord, reveal the truth, whatever it may be. Now, the last point is this. When a person's heart does change, from running and justifying and, and rethinking and, and, uh, and, and saying, I want to know the truth. What you already know is true about God and reality and yourself will then be open to hearing the gospel. Okay, now you can't figure out the gospel just by sitting in a corner thinking. The gospel is a, is a truth revealed by God. But the gospel is this. We're sinners. God is holy. Yes, he is loving, but he's also just. So we're in trouble. We've got a good, loving God and a holy, just God, and I have violated all this stuff. I've been denying it, but now I admit it. I am a sinner. But the good news is, because God is uh, a loving God, doesn't it make sense that he would have done something to rescue us? And that's where the revelation of the gospel comes in. What did he do to rescue us? He himself became a man. And he took the just penalty that we deserve upon himself on the old rugged cross. And he says, I offer that death penalty that I already went through to you. I'm just, so the just penalty must be paid. I can't blink and just forgive you. Penalty, justice must be paid. But I pay the penalty myself. And if you will trust in Christ, 
You know, Jesus says, submit your will to God and you'll know whether my teaching is my own or if, if it's from God. And if, if maybe, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've gone, wow, I have been resisting that. I've been resisting the truth of who Christ is, but now it all makes sense. Yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, he's holy, he's good. Yes, I do believe he died for me on the cross. I embrace Christ. That would be my prayer for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have not left us in the dark to just try to figure it all out on our own. In fact, you tell us simply, submit your will to God's will. And when we do that, we see truth. You are the truth. We see that you solved our problem through your death and resurrection. And Lord, my, my prayer would be for each one here that if there's that resistance against you, resistance against submitting to your will, um, that you would lovingly lift that veil and each one of us would place our trust in Christ. And may he receive all the glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.